what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Every positive pursuit in life, every progression of personal development, change is fueled by one thing, inspiration. It's the drive and the hunger that propels every good endeavor. Without it, we merely have a dream, but never actually move. With it, we can actually overcome insurmountable odds to achieve our desires, convictions, and calling. In this show, we come together to drill down into what really makes success tick and how we can apply it to our unique personal and work lives. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and right now we're going to inspire your true performance. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Miller, and this is Ziggler's True Performance Show, episode 416. Today we have a guest who's a guy I've heard about for many years. We have many mutual friends, but we've never met till now this show. And folks, I'm inspired. Tom and I just finished a great discussion with John Acuff. If you don't know John, he is a New York Times bestselling author of five books, including his most recent, Do Over, Rescue Monday, Reinvent Your Work, and Never Get Stuck. This is the focus for our show today and our interview with John. Uh, So to know him more for 18 years, he's helped some of the biggest brands in the world tell their story, including Home Depot, Bose, Staples, Dave Ramsey team. Most recently, he's spoken to hundreds of thousands of people across the country at events for companies such as Microsoft, Whirlpool, and Comedy Central. He's featured regularly on national media. John has been seen on CNN, Fox News, Good Day LA, and several other key outlets. He's also written for Time, the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, Reader's Digest, and MSNBC. This guy gets around because his messages are always hot and desired. So in addition, John is also a big proponent of social media. He's got blogs that have been read by 4 million people. He has more than 275,000 Twitter followers. And uh, in 2010, this is cool, he used his influence with his tribe to build two kindergartens in Vietnam. So John lives with his wife, Jenny, and two daughters in Franklin, Tennessee, which is my old stomping grounds for a decade before I moved my family out here to the high mountains of Colorado. Uh, Interestingly, on that, when I first scheduled the interview with John Acuff, I knew my dad, Dan Miller of 48days.com. I knew he knew him. And so I just shot him a text said, Hey, yeah, I scheduled uh, John Acuff for the show. He immediately replied back with a text showing me a picture of him and John at an event they'd been together, I think just the night before. So that was fun. Well, so this show is posting just in time for you to participate. And you're going to hear John talk about it a little bit in the show, uh, in the interview, his acclaimed 30 days of hustle course. This guy is about very Ziggler-esque. Of course, that's why he's here. That's why he loves Zig uh, about making your goals actually happen, taking action on them. So he developed a course, 30 days of hustle. It has become a big deal. So you can sign up for the September, 2016, 30 days of hustle course at 
30daysofhustle.com. And that's just the number 30, three is zero. 30daysofhustle.com. And again, you'll hear us talk a little bit more about that as we get going into this interview. Folks, today's show is brought to you in part by designcrowd.com. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-C-R-O-W-D.com. So DesignCrowd is a website that helps entrepreneurs and small businesses outsource or crowdsource custom graphic logo and web design from designers around the world. Design crowd has more than 500,000 designers from over a hundred countries ready to help you with any creative and design projects you might have. So check out designcrowd.com slash Ziggler. You'll get a special VIP offer just for our listeners. Again, that's design crowd, D E S I G N C R O W D.com slash Ziggler. Well, hey, we also have something for you from Ziggler. It's immediate and it's free. Zig Ziggler, one of the most quoted leaders of all time, uh, it's, it's, which is why we have over 4 million fans on Facebook, where I actually just, folks, recorded a Facebook Live video talking about some of our shows. It's something we're starting to do. You should check out the Facebook fan page. You'll see some really great stuff, and you'll see a lot of videos from myself, Tom Ziggler, uh, Mark Tim. Uh, and some of the Michael Newman, some of the leaders with Ziggler. But uh, one of the reasons that Facebook page has over 4 million uh, followers and Instagram has over 270,000 is Zig Ziggler quotes. They're life altering, paradigm shifting, stop you in your tracks, inspiration from Zig. And the cream of the crop quotes are all contained and they're listed by in different categories in the little book of big quotes. So all you need to do to get that thing right now, absolutely free in a PDF format is send a quick text. All right. So you, get ready. It's text true performance. Altogether, no spaces, true performance to this number, 94253, 94253, and you'll get your coffee immediately. Okay, so true performance, altogether, true performance to this number, 94253. Okay, folks, well, hey, we are now going to dive into this show and bring you an incredible interview with John Acuff, Tom Ziegler, and myself talking about John's book, The Message of Do-Over. Here we go. John, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. You and the initial information that we shared, you, you shared that you had lunch with Zig and his wife years ago. Great place to start there. And that Zig gave you some tips about public speaking that were extremely helpful and also gave great advice on balancing your family with your work and travel schedule that you still follow to this day. I want to know what that advice is because I probably need it. Yeah, it was a really valuable lunch. And Tom was there and it was just a chance to really download you know, decades and decades of doing the thing I was just starting to do. Um, so I felt very much like I was sitting at the, the feet of somebody that was experiencing this. And I think there are two specific things I remember. One, um, Zig said, if you can ever get home before midnight or 1 a.m. to sleep in your own bed, to be with your own family, take that late flight. Um, he essentially was saying, that's on you. You get home. You do everything you can to get home. Be back in your own bed. It's better for you. And you're going to be around your family. It's such a special thing to wake up with your family in the morning. So that was the first thing. The second thing was really about 
how to really service a client. And he said, John, there's this great temptation when you land, say you're speaking at 9 a.m. in the morning on a Tuesday, to land at 4 and then go hang out with the volunteers and then go to dinner and do a bunch of different things that aren't what you're hired for. You were hired to go serve that whole audience at 9 a.m. with energy and excitement. And so he said, you have to be very deliberate that if part of your routine is jogging and making sure you're healthy every day and getting enough sleep, that you're balancing that so that, you know, in a kind of a sea of people pleasing, you don't say, I'd love to do a four hour dinner because you're going to be on at that dinner. Like you're with eight clients, you're going to be on. It's really a four hour seminar. And if you're not careful, You'll overserve those eight people, and then the next day to the 500, to the 1,000, to the 5,000, your content falls empty because you've already overperformed. And so I really took both of those tips to heart. Ah, excellent. Okay, good for me to hear as well. So, man, today we're going to hit a couple, a handful of topics, but really revolve around your new book, Do Over. And so just looking at that at a 10,000 foot view, how are you wanting to inspire the true performance audience today with that message? Well, my big thing is that the world is changing. We live in a quickly changing culture. I think about that with my own kids. I had a, my youngest daughter say one night that she said, dad, today at school, the internet was down. Um, we had to do everything old fashioned. And I said, what is, what is old fashioned mean? And she said, well, we, we couldn't Google up the state flag, so we had to walk to the library and look it up in a book. And that was a huge, weird experience for her. And so they just always remind me how fast culture is changing. Airbnb, hotels compete against everyone with a relatively clean room now. Um, you think about Spotify and what it's done to the city I live in, Nashville. My kids think that music was never paid for, that it grows for free on trees. Um, and so there's this huge amount of change. But what I like to tell people is that There's four things that regardless of what change comes next, regardless of what job they have next or what they do next, they're always going to need. And it's what I call a career savings account. And it's four investments. It's relationships plus skills plus character times hustle. And the challenge right now culturally, Kevin, is that a lot of people have bought into the lie that a job is just a job. It's just something you have to do as you try to get to the weekend. I mean, there's a reason we eat at TGI Fridays and not TGI Mondays. Um, there's a reason The Office was a popular TV show. But what I like to tell people is that anything you're going to do for 40 to 60 years of your life, for 40 to 60 hours of every week, isn't just a job. That's your life. And it matters how you do it. And it can have meaning. And it can have meaning where you are right now. I'm not a boy, your job stinks, go get another one tomorrow. I don't think that's always the solution. I think that you can really build a career investment, a career savings plan, and enjoy the job you have right now in a significant way. Well, that will be uh, good news for everybody listening. And that's why they're listening to the message today. And I know that that's what has inspired so many people through your books that have a similar thread on these topics. Well, and I want to get into that book and those four things that you just talked about, though I have to admit today I was trolling a little bit on your social media and you posted a question that I, I want to lead with because it was just killer. And I think that it may be, uh, as, I, as I read through your book, it's somewhat of an umbrella root for all of it. So the question that you posted just today on Facebook and find folks, you can find him, uh, of course, at John Acuff on Facebook. And you said, the older I get, the more I realize that often the things that hold me back the most 
are the broken beliefs I have about life. For example, somewhere along the way, I started to believe that success is bad. I associated shame with success and assumed being successful meant you became greedy, selfish, and arrogant. Consequently, when I would be on the verge of success, I tended to self-sabotage. I'm curious, have you ever done that? Have you ever believed the wrong thing about your about life or yourself? Have you ever self-sabotaged? Well, I, I like it first off, John, because you... Uh, took the words out of my mouth, my own experience. I did the very same thing. I was very, had some disillusioning experiences in my young business life, specifically with some businessmen, some mentors, not my dad, thank goodness, but some other folks. And, uh, so that, that was, uh, it hit me, but obviously you hit a chord with some people. Now, when I looked at this, it had been not quite an hour, I think since you posted it and there were already 35 really heartfelt and deep comments that other people shared on that. So again, in dissecting your book, am I safe to say that that question, man, that's a root issue that undergirds or clouds uh, your message overall and people's pursuit of their personal progress? Yeah, I would really say that falls into the character bucket. Um, What you believe about who you are and how the world works and who other people are. Um, And yeah, the comments were I, I love that about the internet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things I can't stand about the internet. There's a lot of negativity. I think there's a lot of people that are throwing rocks. Um, it can be a place where you can get kind of disillusioned, but there's also a lot of people that are willing to be honest and share what they're working on. And you get the sense of, okay, I'm not alone in this. And here's a tip that I can grow from. Um, so I, for me, one of um, the comments that I, that I really liked was I had somebody say that they felt the same way. And that for them, one of their self-sabotaging lies was that if they got skinny, they'd be too fancy and would have too much vanity. So it's better to stay out of shape and be unhealthy. And you and I might go, that doesn't make any sense. You weren't designed to be unhealthy or out of shape and, and feel bad. But we, like a snowball rolling down a hill, pick up these broken beliefs. And if we're not honest with ourselves, if we're not in relationship. Um, I, you know, I talked to Tom today and behind Tom Ziegler was a huge wall of goals other people had that he's helping them stay focused on. If we're not in relationships with people that'll go, Hey, that thing you keep doing, I don't think it's true. And I think you're actually better than that or different than that or stronger than that. I'd love to show you a mirror so you can see who you really are. You get stuck with that. And I would, yeah, in an umbrella way, wrap that up to character. And so I think it's important for us to, you know, the, the, the way I kind of look at it is that you need all four of those things, relationship skills, character, and hustle. And if one is missing, the whole thing falls apart. And the example I always use is if you've got great relationships, great skills, great hustle, but your character takes a hit, you become Tiger Woods and it falls apart. And it kills me right now when golf commentators go, it's so weird that he's not winning tournaments. He hasn't won a major since 2008. If you do something for eight years in a row, can we stop acting surprised? That's the new norm. Now, is there a second chance for Tiger? Of course there is, just like there's a second chance for me for the many times I've made a mistake. But you're crazy if you think your character can take a hit and it won't impact your skills, relationships, or hustle. And so it's all tied together, and that's why I try to get people to invest in it. And I, I love this. Uh, one of the, and, and you know, when you, whenever you're given a speech and you and you ask a question and all the heads nod, as a speaker, you like write that one down because you're going to ask that again. So, so here's one that we do that echoes this. Uh, 
Howard Partridge, our, our uh, small business coach, said this. He, he took the wheel of life that Ziegler's famous for, seven spokes on the wheel, physical, mental, spiritual, family, financial, career, and personal. And he had it on the screen, and he asked the audience, now, which one of these spokes did God create you not to be successful in? And you just, just that quiet pause, and all of a sudden, the room's like, wait a second, we were created to be successful yeah. in all of those areas. We're, there's not one we're supposed to be failures in. <laughs> and so I, I just think of what you just said, yet we, we attach ourselves to a comment that somebody made to us in a fragile position in our life, and that defines the way we see the world. I'm not supposed to have money. I'm not supposed to go to college. I'm, I'm not supposed to get the promotion. Wait a second. Look at those spokes and how did God create you? Well, and, I, and the challenge to me, Tom, is that that's a very evangelical way to look at the world. Um, that like some of the damage of this comes from Christian circles where my business friends that are atheists, I never have to tell them it's okay to be successful. Like they get that. They're not broken by false humility. They're trying to win because you know what? I've got these talents. I was given them by something or someone. I don't know who, but I've got these talents where in Nashville, I had a Christian musician say to me, John, a very famous Christian musician said, John, if you drive a $75,000 Chevy Suburban, people say, look at you providing for your family. It's a good family vehicle. Good for you. He said, if you drive the same priced BMW, people go for shame. Why do you hate Jesus so much? Like, think of what you could have done with that money, which, by the way, was what Judas was known to say. So, like, it's this really, it's a fascinating, like, the self-sabotage of success is a fascinating topic that we could probably do 10 podcasts on. So, let, yeah, let's talk about your formula for a second. We, we have this formula, we call it the performance formula, and it's attitude times effort times skill equals performance. And then we have the big formula, which is what I call the true performance formula. It's performance times integrity equals legacy. Mm. And it's like, man, we've arrived at the exact same place. Character and integrity are the same thing. That's the thing is you can do great things. You can win, you know, 13 majors and 80 tournaments. But when your integrity gets compromised, your legacy changes forever. Yeah, and there's, you've been around enough leaders to experience that the person on stage wasn't the person off stage. That even as they did a talk on integrity, they were screaming at the event planner. Um, or, you know, and you go, wait, there's a huge disconnect. And part of that is if you're not investing in that, if you don't have people investing in that, it falls apart. One of the things I always say is that leaders who can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. And so if you want to show me a business that fell, show me a church that fell, I'll show you a leader that got isolated, who could only be told yes, who could only be told what they wanted to hear, and eventually it falls apart. And so, yeah, the integrity thing, it's not always the sexiest one to talk about. And sometimes in the press or motivational materials, sometimes people try to kind of brush over it. But you talk about a foundation piece that allows you to build other things on top of it. I, I don't know a better one. Well, now I don't know if I should be proud or ashamed that I drive a Suburban. <laughs> well, I, I, well, it's really, if it's leather, you should be ashamed. 
Um, it's yeah. the LT, son of a gun. Okay. Oh, for for Shay, if you could shut your camera off, I'm just going to focus on Tom. Okay. I can't even look. Thanks. Those look like expensive headphones. I'm going to downgrade immediately. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. Hey, in your book, Do Over, I was intrigued right inside the front cover. You said... You, this is your quote. You, you already speaking to all of us. You already have everything you need for an amazing career. In fact, you've had it since day one, starting on the first day, you got paid to scoop ice cream or restock shelves. You've had the chance to develop the four elements. All great careers have in common relationships, skills, character, and hustle. You already have each of those to one degree or another. Now it's time to amplify them and apply them. So I want to hone in on where you said you've had the chance to develop the four essential elements. As you obviously know, John, well, we all do. Many folks are just going about their daily jobs, simply doing the job and not developing beyond this. So I'm guessing that this message in a lot of, a lot of ways for a lot of folks, it's a wake-up call to take advantage of where they already are because they're not today. Well, it was a wake up call for me. Um, I don't, you know, the only finger I like to point is the one at me. Um, so I try to be honest in how I write um, and say, you know, there were a lot of years where I thought it was my boss's job for me to have a good job mm-hmm. or the company's job for me to have a good job. And then I had to realize, no, 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 that's my job. That's my job to invest. It's my job to grow. It's my job to push things and challenge myself. And it's great when I have a manager that help amplifies that. But there's a lot of times in my own career where I look and say, they're not giving me enough opportunities. They're not helping me enough. They're not doing enough for me versus going, wait a second, wait a second. If I want to get better, I'm the one who should be most invested in that. I remember there was a switch for me that happened when I worked for this company called AutoTrader. They're the online classifieds company. And when I started to recognize that I had that attitude and that it was toxic and it ended in entitlement and frustration and being one of those office cancers where, you know, you're in the gossip group and everybody just kind of talks at lunch how much they hate the job. And I didn't want to do that. I signed up for every leadership program I could. They offered free training. There's so many companies where the training goes unused, where if you said, you know, one of my favorite questions you can ask a boss to get better is, how do I make your job easier? How do I make you look great to your boss? And I've had people ask that question and have the boss's head go, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you serve me? I'm supposed to be the bad guy. How do you help me do my job? And you talk about building value at a company little questions like that and then actually doing what comes with it, the responsibility. Anyone, here's a quick easy one. Anyone who works at a company where you have meetings, if you wanted to build equity there, a skill and a relationship, offer to take meeting notes during the meeting and send them out after. Like that is corporate manna. And you're going to listen better because you've now got accountability. You've set it up that I don't get to zone out. I don't get to look for Pokemon in this meeting. Like I've got to be focused. And so a little thing like that, when there's times at the company where, you know, layoffs, reorgs are inevitable. If you look at the list of people and you go, wow, the last year, Jill has voluntarily done amazing meeting minutes and amazing, like has helped us organize and be efficient versus somebody who just coasts. Like, who do you think they care about? And so like, it's not rocket science. That's what I mean by you've always had these opportunities. These are four words we're all familiar with. None of the listeners are going to go, so weird. He said, skills matter. I've been focused on being unskilled. It's all making sense. I'm so glad they booked him. No, these are really simple concepts. It's just about actually doing them. 
one of the, you know, getting back to that question in front of the room, I've never heard a boss say this happened to him. So if you if you have a bad boss and you want to create a heart attack on Monday morning, just do this. Go into their office and say, hey, there's this training. It's coming to town. It's out of town. It's about our industry. Is it okay if I pay my way myself and take time off without pay to go to it so I can learn how to be a better person for this job? Yeah. Right? And so what would happen? Yeah. You know what's going to happen if you ask that question? They're going to fall over backwards, get up, and say, I'm paying your way. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Yeah, and it, it's funny you mentioned that. AT&T CEO just came out. Um, they had a report where they said, if you're not taking five to ten hours of online training a week, you're going to be obsolete within two years, and you better be doing that on your own time. So they've issued an ultimatum of, hey, in, our, in this self-directed world we live in now, where things are moving this quickly, you have to actively be growing your career. And so, I, yeah, I, I think there's some really simple ways that if you want to enjoy your job more, if you want to be rewarded more at work, you put in some of this hustle. Like, that's where the hustle comes in. And, and again, it's not – these aren't shocking things we're saying. Going to a training, you have Google. Like, it would take you 30 seconds to put in your job title, your city, and find a training. And so that's what's really fun about the age we live in. I know. It's, it, this is a classic Zig story. Oh, about 15 years ago, a, a client came in. They wanted Dad to speak at their event, and it was in the direct sales organization. And so uh, they're holding it. They're paying Dad's fee, but they wanted the people in the room to buy the product themselves. And so Dad created a video with them. They interviewed him. And what the company did is they pre-purchased 500 uh, Secrets of Closing the Sale books. Awesome book, by the way. And in the interview with Dad, they said, Mr. Ziegler, do you recommend a book that our people read? In other words, it was a setup so that they could promote the book. And Dad said, absolutely, 100%. The book that your people should read next is the one their manager just finished reading. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So there's a two-way responsibility there. One, yeah. I go to my leadership and say, what are you learning from? Mm-hmm. And I get involved in that. And two, leadership, you better be learning. Yeah, because people are going to be asking that question. Yeah. So That's great. I want to welcome a fairly new supporter of Ziggler's True Performance show, Nerd Wallet. Folks, I recently went to Cancun to an all-expense paid resort. It cost nearly 600 bucks per day. We went for six days. I only paid for two. How? I simply made all my purchases on a credit card that offered the right rewards instead of using a debit card. Uh, it's money I'm spending anyway. We flew for free as well by using another card with hundreds of different credit cards out there. Choosing one that gets you what you want for spending your money is complex. So finding the right card at nerd wallet is fast. They personalize your tools. They let you compare over 1700 credit cards in seconds, making it easy to find and apply for your next credit card that gives you the bonuses you want for using it. Again, NerdWallet, they just do it all for you. Their financial experts give you straightforward, no hype reviews, just clear, honest information, no getting bogged down in the five print, fine print. I mean, hey, I, I recently flew 11 family members to a reunion. I only paid 1300 bucks after using a bunch of rewards miles. So you can get 
all you can from the money you spend, but pay it off at the end of the month, please. But visit nerdwallet.com slash Ziggler. That's nerdwallet.com slash Ziggler. Well, I want to ask on something you, you mentioned earlier, talking about cars, we were joking about and some of the peer pressure and perspectives of our financial stewardship, what we do with our, our money. But you mentioned being part of that office crowd and some of the, some of the toxicity that then you stepped out of. And my first thought was just the curiosity of what, what caused you to step out of that, John. But then even in that, when people, you know, they're here to inspire their true performance. That's why everybody's listening to this show right now. And I think we see that sometimes we experience for all of us, it's one thing to stand out and that that can feel egotistical. Like you talked about to want to stand out, but even just to step out of the norm. So here you are stepping out of a, of a, of a toxic group, the water cooler chit chat that in itself is difficult for a, a lot of folks. So I'm curious on one hand, what was it that sparked that awareness for you to step out, start your own journey? And, and if you'd speak to that, I mean, it is, it's a challenge for folks. It's uncomfortable. It's your, it's your sphere of influence. It's peer pressure. And even just to step out, say, you know what? I'm not going to participate is difficult for folks. Yeah. So I think the big thing was I found something I wanted more. Um, I, I started to blog and I started to see what was possible with the internet and that there were, there were all these opportunities. And I saw that my attitude was impacting my ability to seize opportunities. Um, I always tell people, especially if you're at a job right now that you don't love, maybe isn't your favorite, um, that you don't get to slack all week and then think you'll hustle on the weekends. You're training yourself all week. So the example I sometimes use is I had a hard time listening to my wife at night, and I traced a lot of it back to I was tuning out in meetings that didn't involve me. So for 40 hours a week, I taught my brain, as soon as people start talking about things you don't want to talk about or care about, tune out, think about sports, think about something else. So then, of course, I'd go home at night and my wife would go, hey, here's what happened today during my day. And my brain would automatically go, not directly about John, shut it down. So I recognized as I started to like the internet, I started to go, wow, there's so many people doing so many cool things. I want to be one of those people someday. I'm not right now. I don't feel that way right now. But I want to be one of those people someday. And I recognized, then, wow, how I work with these 40 hours matters. I'm training myself. So it might not be my final job. It might not be my favorite job. It might not be my dream job. But it's where I'm invested 40 hours. And I want to lean in everything I have into this so that when I'm doing other stuff, I've trained that muscle. So I started to see that we're not disconnected. Again, it gets back to that you're one person. And I love that. So you slack at work, uh, slacking at work and excelling on the weekends doesn't work. Slacking doesn't at work, happen, no. slacking at work is training. Well, I love the analogy because it's what I was taught as a, a, a pro cyclist that if I, even in my workouts, if I, tr- if I allow myself to quit a scheduled workout, the scheduled plan, I'm allowing, I'm training myself to quit there. It'll be that much easier in racing. Well, that scared me to death because I'm there to win races. Yeah. Uh, I quit, I quit, I, I stopped quitting my efforts even in the training. So man, that, that resonates with sure. me, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, when you look at the champions, like, like Jack Nicholas, as soon as it would start raining, he would go out to practice. Huh. In other words, the more intense, the worse the environment. Tom Watson always said, man, the more the wind blows, the more I love it because it eliminates 90% of the field. Yeah. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, that's what happens when the, when the heat comes. Let's make it happen. Let's get in the game. 
Well, that was kind of how I looked at, you know, Seth Godin talks about that in his book, The Dip, about the dip, the difficult part that you have to go through in any journey is a filter. You know, he said organic chemistry in college is a filter. It, it keeps a lot of people from being doctors that thought someday I'll get to casually be a doctor. And you, no, you don't. And so the more, the more you hustle, the more you enjoy those filters where you go, okay, I'm putting in the time, I'm putting in the I'm going to be ready for this situation. And there's, you know, a down economy makes it easier for my small business to shine because it's a lot, it's a lot more obvious when the average businesses kind of float to the top in a down economy. Yeah. Well, hey, you talk a lot, John, about change and about even quitting your dream job. And you've, you, in all of your messages, your books, your speaking, you're very vulnerable and sharing, as you said, the realities of your own uh, journey in that as people can relate to the trials and the tribulations. When was your most difficult time period? Even if, it, even if you look back now, gosh, that's when I grew the most. What was along your journey? What was happening during the most difficult the most despairing, you know, time and what was, uh, when was, when was the most, when was that most difficult time and what led up to it? Yeah, I think the most difficult time was deciding it was time to transition out of my dream job. Um, there were, there were a lot of good things about it. Um, and I felt like there was a lot of momentum, Mm -hmm. but over, you know, over a period of time, as I started to look at where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and what I felt like I wanted to build, um, I started to recognize it's really hard to build your own thing inside of somebody else's. Um, and you know, that I'm more of an entrepreneur than I might've admitted years ago or even known, um, and being in a greenhouse environment for entrepreneurs like the Dave Ramsey Company, as I started to want to be an entrepreneur, that's where I started to feel this divide. And so being willing to step away from the most fame I might ever have. I mean, that's just the reality. Like that's, you know, in our culture, fame is often listed as the number one desired goal. And so to walk away from that and to go, Okay, I'm going to build this thing that's that's my own that I get to grow and shape and challenge myself and it's not going to be easy and there's you know it's not guaranteed by any means and I'm stepping out from a 7 million person radio show where I got supported. Um that's what I that's what I tell people. You know, the first year I worked for Dave, the first month I went from speaking to 700 people to 8,000 people events and you know within a month. And so I you know I can't write certain blog posts where I go, if you just do these three steps, everything will turn out because that was a three-year rocket ride. Um, I had a friend, uh, Andy Andrews' manager, somebody you guys probably are friends with, Robert D. Smith, said, Dave fast-forwarded my career by 10 years, and he's right. And so to step away from that kind of platform was really difficult. But I knew that to become the writer I wanted to become – I wanted to work with New York publishing houses. I wanted to grow my own business. For me to continue to speak honestly into the lives of people who are at companies, who are building businesses, I wanted to build one too. And that required me to to leave a company. So that was probably the most challenging, just as far as the unknowns. So what were some of the doubts? I mean, just because we've got so many folks out there, that, right? I mean, you're talking about the ultimate golden handcuffs in essence. And we have so many folks who are, they've got a family, they've got a mortgage, they're paying their bills. Life is, they've gotten into a pretty good place, but they are discontent and they're struggling one with the guilt of that, as you know, that, Hey, they've got a good thing. They should be happy for it. Right. Especially when somebody else is not doing as well. So they're looking at that and it feels so selfish one to desire 
uh, more, but we, I don't think we can be there. Any of us, I can't and not understand that and have a little bit of a guilt and, and deal with that doubt of really is, should, is that really okay to desire well, more well, and a big, risk? A big thing comes back to relationships where you need people that you can have honest conversations with in part so that six months from then a year later, when you are full of doubts, when you go, what did I do? Oh my gosh. They can remind you, well, what you did was you deliberately walked through, you asked the right questions. There was a plan, you know, in the middle of your most doubtful moments, doubt will erase all the work you did to make that decision. So you need people that can ask you those questions and can say, okay, well, what's the story you want to tell your kids, you know, in five years, in 10 years, where, you know, where are you trying to head and why are you trying to head there? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a big part of it is not trying to do it alone. And then the second thing is, not rushing things. You know, that, I talked about that um, in my book, Quitter. When I was at Auto Trader and I started to see the opportunities with the internet, I got a book deal. I got to publish a book called Stuff Christians Like with Zondervan. And all these people came up to me and were like, oh my gosh, are you going to quit your job? Are you going to quit your job? Like, you've really made it. And the reality was I had been paid $30,000. That was my advance. So after agent fees, taxes, everything, I got like $13,000. If I won a $13,000 lottery, no one would go, guess you're moving to Mexico. Like here, you know, easy street, here you go. So I stayed at the job. I continued to like go speak on my own vacation days. I built it on the side. So I'm a big believer in going, I think we over glamorize the step out in faith moments and you, you have to do this like one big, huge transition. And I'm a big believer. And instead of pushing your way towards something, Um, having it pull you. And by that, I mean, side opportunities get so big that you can't help but go, okay, I've given all my margin to this thing. And this thing is growing and it's growing and it's growing. And it's time for me to admit it's growing and go do it full time. So I, I think you have to be patient that it's a process. So in that, in that, so you're going through that and a lot of good, a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges, but people encouraging you and whatnot. What was your, I'm curious as to what was your, just on a personal level, your biggest fear, the thing that stuck in, like, I know when I'm looking at going after something, I generally feel like, you know, what? It, it'll work out. We'll be okay. The finances will, will, I, we've done this enough. It'll work out. The thing that I end up coming back to, you know, taking a shower, worrying about is how much am I going to stress my wife? How much am I going to pressure, put pressure there? That's maybe going to take away from what she feels called to that. I want to support. And that becomes that little rub that I'll come back to that little primary thorn or fear. What was yours? Oh, my biggest, my biggest fear um, I guess my, my fear was I knew that I couldn't really talk about the situation because it was a private situation. Mm-hmm. I had started this blog where I was very kind of, here's what's going on. Here's everything that's happening. And so when I transitioned out, so many people had questions, rightfully so, cause I'd built this conversation, but like any job situation, you shouldn't share what HR said to you. You shouldn't share your salary. And so like that, I felt, felt like, People would have questions I wouldn't be able to answer. I was worried that people, you know, what I learned is in the absence of a story, people write their own story. And so, like, if you've ever been a pastor and left a church, good luck. Like, because that's, like, you know, like, if you want to understand what grace doesn't feel like, be a big pastor that leaves a church. And so I was worried not for the people I worked with, but, like, just regular humans on the outside. Like, I wasn't expecting to ever have an audience. Um that, that said, you know, that threw rocks or had questions I couldn't answer. So kind of the, 
for me, sometimes the fear comes from a health, unhealthy place of people pleasing. Mm. Um, I think on the one hand, my ability to read a room is a, is a helpful skill as a speaker because I can go speak at different organizations and fit in like I've been a chimney sweep. I've never been a chimney sweep, but through interviews and questions and relating, I can share a message that's relevant to them. But at the same time, and when it's unhealthy, my people pleasing goes, I have to justify my decision to strangers on the internet. So I think that for me, like worrying about what people would think is where my fear is unhealthy. I, I understand that cloth, John. And um, I wish my worst fear was how will this hurt my wife? That's like the most noble fear to ever confess. Like I wish as a, I wish as a husband, I was like, when I'm super terrified, no, I, like I get selfish, not like not outwardly focused. Like I wish it was that. Well, Tom, will you leak that to my wife, please? <laughs> yeah. Somehow. Thanks. Yeah, I will. I'll say, man, Kevin, oh man, all the time he talks about letting you down. Okay, good. Yeah, that's his number one, number one <laughs> fear. Thanks. Number one fear. And there's brownie points in them words. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you know, that. You know, that's interesting because when I studied dad and I, and I looked at his impact on the stage and what made him basically fearless on stage. I mean, he said the most, he said things nobody else could say that was truth and people loved him for it. I mean, he didn't get the, I mean, I say it, you say it, we get scalped before we leave the room. He says it. And you know, whether you believe in what he said or not, everybody's like, Oh, I have to think about that. Right. I mean, it's just that. And so here's where dad was is he, he knew that his only responsibility to God was two things to have a, vibrant relationship with him and then to speak the truth in love. And when you do that, you don't have any worry about what people do with it. That's not your responsibility. Mm. And oh my gosh, when, when I set out to speak the truth in love around people who I want to like me, <laughs> you go back to your room and you're like, Oh, how did that go? <laughs> right? Yep. Yep. You analyze. Go on down the road. I'd ask yeah. him, how did the talk go? And he never he never judged the talk by the audience. Oh, he judged great. it by that I please him. Man, I want to get there. Yeah. That's great. Well, well, and I think you're right in that he could say things because he had both of those things in place, so it came across as true and honest. Like he didn't he wasn't saying those things for to try to manipulate a reaction. He was saying them because he believed in his core. These are the things I'm supposed to say. So I'm going to, I'm going to deliver these. And so then like once that happened, that's my job. So I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank another sponsor of today's true performance show, earth class mail. They move your snail mail to the cloud, giving you instant access 24 seven. And they integrate with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for business over to the digital world, but we still need to pick up sort and manage physical mail with earth class mail. You can get all your mail scanned and accessible online 24 seven. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud 
cloud storage, deposit electronic checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get a real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors, and you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your front door if you run your business from home. The Earth Class Mail is a great solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. So visit Earth classmail.com slash Ziggler and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's earthclassmail.com slash Ziggler. Well, so on, that's a good segue into, cause I've got a question surrounding your first, your first, uh, in the, in the four, the four pieces in your book, you walk us through these four major career transitions that you say we're all going to invariably face. And, uh, the first one the career bump, relationships, investment, uh, who you know. And you said, your quote is, we don't often spend intentional time building relationships because the return on investment doesn't feel immediate or measurable enough. Which, yeah, as I was thinking about this and reading the book, John, I thought we grow up in fam- Now, I was blessed, and Tom, you were as well, to grow up in families where this did happen. But most folks, they grow up in families. Uh, they spend so many years in formal education but uh, as a primary success ingredient, relationships, very, very few people are ever taught, much less even made aware of the value and given any kind of training. And, you know, one of my favorite books of all time given to me by my parents was Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think it's one of those that they probably bribed me to, to read. I probably got some reward or, or something. But in that, in relational aspect, I mean, where do you look at Obviously, your book uh, is a key resource for this, folks. Uh, John's book uh, do over in his other books, but where did you find resources that helped you in that awareness and in building strength with relational health? Well, I think it, I, I think I look to people that have the kind of life I want to have. And then I, then I ask them questions. So a guy like Reggie Joyner, for instance, who runs, um, rethink and the orange conference in Atlanta and helped found North point, um, community church with Andy Stanley, He's somebody who has reached out to me over and over and over, and I've watched I've watched the people that are around him. Um, I think there's a there's there's really interesting ways to study a leader and study a business. I think you know things like the culture is unhealthy if someone who leaves can't come back. Like if the general rule is no one who ever leaves your company could ever work there again, there might be a culture issue happening because like to not work there is to break the relationship versus going, we're going to launch you. Like, that's awesome. We're so proud of you and we can't wait for you to come back. I just had a friend leave a law firm and they said, the door is always open. You like, once you're part of this firm, you're always part of this firm. We can't wait to have you come back. So I think being around leaders that I would say, wow, I thought it was, you know, my, my initial thinking, kind of my immature thinking was you got to try to do it on your own. It's you against the world. Like sometimes that's how we think a leader is, or it's lonely at the top and you got to be at the top and claw your way and, you know, step all over people. And so as I started to talk to people that were further down the road than me, um, another one would be Dan Cathy. I spent, I got to spend a lot of time with Dan Cathy. Kathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, when I lived in Atlanta. And watching him interact with people as a billionaire who still loved people. Like I remember there'd be times where we'd be at events and somebody, somebody didn't know who he was. And they'd say, what do you do? And he'd say, oh, I'm in customer service. And he wasn't doing that as a gimmick. He was doing that because his heart was still my job's to help people at Chick-fil-A. 
That's my ultimate job. And so watching him and build networks and, and, and my favorite, here's my favorite Dan Cathy story. So we're at the uh, Chick-fil-A Bowl. It's the day before the Chick-fil-A Bowl at the Georgia Dome. Um, huge college you know, football game, championship game. And he gets a phone call and he goes, hey, hold on a second. got to take this. Takes a phone call and uh, talks for a minute and then comes back and says, oh, sorry, that was one of the sophomores from the Sunday school class I teach. Um, he wanted to get some tickets to the game. So can you imagine there's a sophomore in high school who has Dan Cathy's cell phone number, a billionaire, and has a close enough relationship where he feels confident enough the day before to call Dan Cathy and go, like, I just wish I could have seen the sophomore on the other end with his friends, like, hold up, hold up. We need tickets? I'll call Danny C. Let me get him on the horn. Like, but he was, he was still, like, he was investing in a younger generation. And so for me – Seeing people that I thought, like in my mind, by my definition, had healthy families, healthy lives, loved the Lord, and were killing it in business, and seeing how they treated relationships and how they valued relationships and how they gave to relationships, that's where for me, in addition to great books that I've been able to read, uh, challenged me about my view of relationship. Well, so in this, in this first aspect here relationship investments. It's who, you know, talking about that. I mean, I understand that, but we know that some people struggle with, gosh, it feels like I'm looking at that relationship with an agenda that there's something that I want out of it. And that feels bad. Now I of course have benefited so much from the people I, I know. I know Tom Ziegler. I get the host, the Ziegler show. I, 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 did I have an agenda? No, never. Um, it's just pure friendship. I mean, but there are good things that you get out of things, but just to speak to that, because I know it's a, it's an honest struggle. I appreciate the struggle that folks have that gosh, it feels bad. If I go towards a relationship with an agenda that it might be able to help me. Yeah, I think you have to – I think it's a balance. I don't think it's – I think we often go – we think that as soon as you try that, you're going to be the cheesiest, most um, manipulative person. And, and where I try to really encourage people is be deliberate. Um, you know, Take it in a marriage context. It's deliberate of me to have an Evernote file in my phone that when my wife Jenny says, oh, I have always wanted such and such, and it's February and her birthday is not until August – it's deliberate of me to open my phone, write that down, and then come August, I can pull up that file and go, I have 22 ideas versus every guy on the planet. It's like, I got you a toaster. You know, That's me being deliberate about relationships. So I think the same is true of people that you're trying to work with or work for. It breaks down when you're not able to contribute anything to that relationship. So there's a very big difference, for instance um, – so I, I have this goal-setting course I teach online called 30daysofhustle.com. And when I ask my mastermind group, the guys I'm in relationship with, to tweet it out or share it, that's a great ask. Like I'm asking them to help me. We're in relationship. If I contacted somebody I'd never met and I led with, hey, stranger who, whose life didn't have any value to me until you were able to offer your platform, I'd like you to do this. That's a very different ask. And so I think a lot of this, I always tell people, ask for, for ask friends for favors and ask, uh, or no, yeah, ask, uh, ask, never ask a stranger for a favor, ask a stranger for a friendship, you know, ask friends for favors. And so I think we, it breaks down when you get lazy and impatient and lazy and impatient is I want to look up the top 20 leaders in my industry and then expect them to do 
do something for me. Like if you, you know, if you send Gary V some big long request, like he shouldn't do that. He's never heard of you. He's serving his people. I mean, I know, um, I know uh, there's times where I've interacted with Dan and Dan will do things because they serve his audience. Like if you ask your dad, okay, hey, why'd you do this other thing? Or why did you help this other person? He'll say, because I genuinely believe that it would help the people that come to my farm and the mom I'm trying to help in Ohio. And that, like, so he'll share generously if he believes that'll really help people. So I think it all boils down to, will it help somebody? Or are you being impatient and jumping, like jumping intimacy levels? Because that's what sometimes people, when they hear, oh, I have permission to just ask people for whatever I want. And then they jump intimacy levels and it just breaks down. Yeah. You know, this is a, uh, it's based off of a, of a business lie. You were talking about lies that we believe. Bob Bodine says that the business lie is, is we can't do business with our friends, mm. right? So what that means is, is we're supposed to do business with people we don't know, we don't like, and we don't trust. Yep. Well, and uh, I would say another business lie is it's not, it's nothing personal. It's just business. Like as long as humans are involved, there's always going to be some yeah. degree of it's personal. And that, and that gets back to the friendship thing. So my, my buddy Jeremy Coward, who's a photographer, started for a hotel um, that serves people. And it's called Purpose Hotel. And I couldn't wait to tweet about that. I couldn't wait to contribute to the Kickstarter. I couldn't wait to tell everybody. I, I, I couldn't wait to mention it on podcasts. But that was born out of relationship and that was born out of friendship. It wasn't born out of a stranger contacting me and demanded that I tweet about it. That's, that's always what makes me feel dirty. And so I would challenge people, if you get a gut check of like, wait a second, this one doesn't feel right, be careful. Pause on it. Think about it. Pray through it. Yeah. Um, you know, there might be something you're supposed to not do. Yesterday we were recording uh, in, our, in our studio here, we were recording Bob's new book that's coming out, uh, Two Chairs. So Andy, one of our guys, he, he produces our stuff. He's doing the Zig documentary. He's in there, and Bob's recording. You've recorded books. It's tedious. Yep. you got to have your energy up. You're speaking in the mic. There's nobody there. And you make edit notes as you go along. Well, originally, somebody else was going to do the edit. And Bob comes out after the first day of recording, and he's like, man, Eddie's, Andy's got to do the edit. He's got to go in and fix the audio. I said, why is that? And he said, well, he knows where all the marks are, but he's heard me before, and he cares. If you want somebody to edit your life, you want somebody who cares. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And you know when they don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's flip this to only do business with friends. I just created a new corporation with my best friend, uh, 50-50. And I know that's, that's supposed to be a dangerous thing, but my gosh, what a gift it is. Well, hey, in this same section of the book, John, I want to hit on, this is actually on page 29, People Hate Change. And you wrote, upon being confronted with change, our first reaction is to brainstorm reasons it won't work. Man, I mean, that's just humanity. It's me. It's my humanity for sure. I mean, decisions. Instead of doing the hard work of thinking how we can say yes, how I can say yes, and make a decision to do something that takes effort, it is definitely easier, much less burdensome and risky just to come up with a quick reason why I can't and I can pass it on. I'm, I'm a pro at that, especially with social engagements as an introverted guy. Um, but with that, I mean, you're talking about to, to be open to change, which we all have to be if we're going to make personal progress from our current norm to something better. I mean, you're talking about it's a mindset. I mean, it's a big deal. It's a new personal culture that you define as, as what? what kind of, is, it, is it a growth culture that we have just got to adopt to be able to 
more readily accept and embrace change? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think about um, my daughter the other day found uh, a flip cam. I don't know if you remember those. They were just a camera. They had a little USB on the side. And she said, what's this? What did this thing do? And that was five, six years ago. We're not talking 60 years ago. And so, you know, in the 90s, I would have needed to find an eight-track player to ask my parents, what's this? It would have been a 20-year. And now we're talking five years, six years where, you know, something can go like that. And so I think we're, the change rate is so fast right now. And it's challenging. And it's really hard. It's not easy for me. I think a lot of a lot of what it comes down to with dealing with change is it has to become a daily thing. Um, and there's sometimes where I have to deal with it a hundred times a day and kind of my stuck in the mud. Um, I don't want to have to do that. Here's an example just that, you know, I've needed a new laptop for about a year. For about six months, most days when I got on, it would say your startup disk is full. You can't use it. And it was so full by the time I got the message, I couldn't even Google how do you fix this because none of my programs would work. And I knew I needed the change. But in my head, I drew this huge, massive picture of like, I'm going to lose all my contacts. And it, like, like, I don't even know where to buy things in the Apple store. Like, there's no register anymore. You just have to find somebody in a single colored shirt and they buy it off their hip. And like, Ugh! and I really got kind of what I'd call old man about the whole experience until finally the pain of the frustration was bigger than my fear or my, my silly kind of, I don't want to change. And so now I'm, and, and I'm working with a, you know, I, I went online and said, okay, I like to, I'm a community person. I need, I learn best from an expert that I've hired. I've, I've learned that over the years. You know, I'm not a great, I'll never be good at like certain exercise programs that are just you focused. I'll be great at a class. I'll be great with a trainer. So I hired somebody um, that's an Apple expert that's walking me through the process and they're going to help me transfer and figure out the, the cloud and Dropbox and all this stuff that if I thought I could only change one way, which is now I have to go become a computer expert, I'll never do it. So the older I get, the more um, more grace I have for for myself in the sense of, okay, I need a new computer. I'm afraid of this one path. Well, guess what? There's a million paths. Let's find the one that's the best to change on. Let's go do it. Um, so that's, you know, so somebody who might be stuck at a job right now and you go, well, you could probably like work on some stuff. They might immediately go, I can't find another job. I live in a small part of Iowa. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't, I didn't say you had to change your job. I, I said that there's other things you could work on. Maybe you take a night class. Maybe you find a mentor. Maybe you, you know, start researching Facebook ads because a lot of people don't understand them. And there's a huge developing market in helping People like John Acuff do Facebook ads. There's a lot of ways you can change that aren't the painful one you've turned into an idol. Like it. Thank you. Investment two, skills, what you do. And you said everybody, uh, you, actually, this is a great quote uh, that you had at the top of that. Everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to grow uh, by Johan Wolfgang Van Goth, which is one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Yeah, it's uh, a real name. That's a real name. That's a good brand. Uh, but you said relationships get you the first gig. Skills get you the second. So I want to read a, a piece right here out of your book. You said skills. We often think they are stamped on our birth certificate at the hospital. You were either born a musician or not, but every bit of research argues otherwise. They can be learned. They can be grown. They can be changed. 
And uh, you another quote there, you said, when asking people what their skills are after citing uh, Liam Neeson and Taken, many people would say two things, one of two things. I don't know what my skills are and I don't have or I don't have any. So talk to us about what you mean when you say skills, because I think a lot of times it gets jumbled in with the other terms that we throw on talents, gifts, abilities. But in here, you're talking about skills, growing them. We're not stuck with only what we view as the skills we were born with. Yeah, I think you have to expand your definition of skill. Um, anyone who's spent time in an office knows that they've bumped into people who had amazing technical skills but no people skills, and they're a terrible person to work with. And nobody wants to work with them, and they, people avoid them. Um, or somebody who's really talented. You know, like Some of the most talented people I've ever worked with got fired pretty quickly because they didn't have the skill of showing up on time. And you go, well, there's no way that showing up on time is a skill. 100% that's a skill. We talked earlier in the conversation about doing meeting agendas and meeting minutes. That's a skill. And so a big part of what I like to get people to do is expand their definition. Because I think we do narrow, we think a skill is, I'm not a painter, or I'm not good at math, or you know, um, I'm not a public speaker, and we have this very narrow definition. And so what I like to do is, you know, a skill exercise. I use a, a lot of note cards in the book to get people to go, okay, what are the skills I actually have? What are the things that I'm good at, I'm curious about? You know, and write, write one down per note card. And at the end of the exercise, everyone always has more than they thought. And so I think that a lot of times we just have to do a little bit of work to kind of smoke out some of those skills. Um, so that, that's a big part of what I care about is helping people expand their definition so that they have the confidence to go, oh, wow, I have, I have 10 skills. And sometimes when you do that, Kevin, you realize my frustration at work is that I've got 30 skills and they only need one of the 30. Mm. And so now, now I have information. Now I can go, oh, okay, like that's a tangible thing I can work with. So I bet if I worked hard, I could add these 15 to my job over time. I could find ways to work on these. Great. Or, wow, I've tried. There's not going to be an option. Maybe I do need to look for another position within the company. Maybe my skills, like no wonder it's so frustrating. I'm a bird working in a fish world. Like it should be frustrating. Every part of my skills aren't being used. And talk about a frustrating feeling, leaving all your skills will make you pretty depressed at your job pretty quickly. Okay, well, you just kind of edged into what my next point of that was, or, or next question was on skills, that it is understanding what skills are somewhat inherent to you. You talked about being a, a bird and having uh, a job that has you in something that's, that's contrary to those skills. So you're not saying, hey, wherever you are, gain the skills that you need to excel no matter what they are, but understanding what are your inherent skills, uh, thus uh, your exercise, and then do they fit where you're at or can they, or do you need to look elsewhere? How often do you see that happening in the people that you're working with where it does fit or maybe they need to look elsewhere because there's just not enough resonance? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I guess part of part, whenever I talk about looking somewhere else, I always get worried that people will, take that advice and jump tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I've, I've said before, quitting is the new American dream. It's like, I did it, I'm out of here, like, and I don't like all of you guys. And so I think that like, the two exercises I always tell people are skills and relationships. Who do you know? What do you know? Um, and you mentioned that at the beginning of kind of this part of the conversation, that relationships get you the first gig, skills get you the second. Um, I said that, you know, 
Dave gave me the chance to speak to 7,000, 8,000 people. That was a relationship because I worked for him. I was his employee. He gave me that chance. That was a relationship. If I was terrible at it, he's not going to invite me 10 times. He's right. not going to go, I really like John. If you have a friend, I, I put this example in the book, who's uh, a terrible hairdresser, but you love that friend, you will go one time and then say, bless her heart. Like, bless, <laughs> you will never go back again based on the friendship. Skills matter, skills matter, skills matter. And I think the big challenge is that they're changing so quickly. You know, you ha I have to know Snapchat. I asked a room full of high schoolers, who here reads blogs? Not a single hand went up. Good to know as a blogger. And I said, well, where are you guys? I said, we're all using Snapchat. So I could, again, we tie this into change, go, I don't want to change. I don't want to learn Snapchat. I don't have much option if I want to be relevant to a high school audience who turns into a college audience who turns into an employee audience someday. And so like that's where for me even more so – or like here's another example. Youth ministers right now have to be good at internet marketing. And here, here's what I mean. If you're a youth minister, you have to know how to market on Instagram because say you have an event and only two kids show up. You don't post a photo from that event of the seven uneaten pizzas, the two kids, and the hundred empty chairs because you confirm for every kid that didn't come that they made the right decision. You tell every kid, hey, you know how you thought it was going to suck and be awkward? It was. No, you take a photo of the flyer and say, we had a great time tonight, which is true. Two people are 200. We had a great time tonight. Can't wait to see you at the next one. But the challenge is, do you think a lot of seminaries are teaching the skill of Instagram marketing right now to future youth ministers. Maybe some progressive ones are, but if you're not careful, um, the line I say in there is that skills get sharp slowly and go dull quickly. And so you'll get lapped in your industry regardless of the industry if you're not careful. So John, I got a, I got a question for you. We, uh, we have a program called Ziegler Legacy Certification, and it's where we certify people who want to go out and train and speak our Ziegler content. So the question I get all the time is, hey, and you get, you know, I know you're a speaker, so you get these questions. Yeah, I'm thinking about being a speaker. What do you think? What do I need to do? How do I make that jump? How do I grow from here to here? And so my, my standard answer is this, and I just wanted to get your bounce back on it. I say there, and, and our, I look at three sides of a triangle. The first arm or leg of that triangle is what's your track record of success? What are your skills? What reputation have they created for you that, that you think, wow, this opportunity looks good? The other side of the triangle or the second side is what problem do you love solving? I mean, if, if you were built to solve a problem, what problem is it? And then the third leg is our particular Ziegler opportunity. Do you see how the Ziegler material content philosophy, all the things that we provide you, the brand – does it connect your track record of success with the problem that you want to solve? If that's a good answer, if you like that, if that resonates with you, then yeah, let's, you know, come on, we want you. But, but if it doesn't, Hey, keep looking, you know, how can I help? What's your, what's your thought on that? Cause that third leg could be anything. Yeah, I think the, yeah, the third leg could be anything. My th first thought is that first leg is where a lot of people want to rush. So I feel like when I see people that their triangle falls apart, it's because the first leg was exaggerated. And they go and you say, well, what, what are your skills telling you? What's your results telling you? What's your experience tell you? And they go, I did one good speech 
or I had one viral blog post or I had one product that sold reasonably well and now I'm ready to go all the way in and you go, that's not, that's right. not enough. Um, it's like people that tell me like, once you've written a handful of books, you're kind of set. No, you're not. You, I mean, as an author, you keep writing books. As a speaker, you keep, you, know, you keep giving speeches. You have to build it over time. So I would say for me, the, of the three, that's the one where I, I think that people sometimes want to rush beyond that. And it's understandable. Um, it's like me. I've, I've been running my own business for the last three years. I'm still a toddler in that. And so sometimes I'll get around other business leaders who have done it for 30 years and I'll go, oh, I want that same thing. I always joke with people, uh, well, like when a 24-year-old tells me they want to be doing what Michael Hyatt is doing, I always say, well, hey, he's in his late 50s and ran, a, uh, he was a CEO for 20 years and you're 22. So there's a chance that first leg for you isn't set up yet. Like he's been, he has 30, 40 years of that leg, like, that he's established, he's running a team because he's awesome at running a team, and and you shouldn't compare yourself to that, and you should go work on your own leg. So the qualifying question that I ask then is because I have to find that out. I say, okay, you're going to launch this, you're going to go out. Who's going to be your first audience? And if they don't immediately say, hey, it's the people I've already got relationships with, then that is a telling thing. Because if, if you can't go back to your friends and those who already trust you and bring something that could help them improve every area of their life, man, it's a, it's a hard road. And so, yeah, that first leg, that's it. So I didn't realize that's how I was making that, that circle back. But that's exactly right. You know, one, one great speech isn't a career. No, and, 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 and even enjoying it isn't a career. Like that could be just a hobby. Like if you don't have results, if you don't have the patience, if you don't, you know, so there's all these, I sometimes, sometimes people look at me and go, oh, you take big risk. And not really. Um, you know, I've tried to build things over years and I have a wife who doesn't take crazy risks. Like, you know, we're a team. And so I try to encourage people. I never want to be labeled as a dream killer because my honest belief is that people are capable of more than they think. And I believe that because everyone I've ever met has been. Um, but at the same time, I think, I, I don't think dreaming means being dumb. Um, I, I had a friend one time tell me that, especially Christians, it's like God's flying the plane and we parachute out the back. And he looks back and goes, I, who told you to jump? Like I was going <laughs> to land it like in like a month pretty safely. And we go, I'm doing it for Jesus. And then your coffee <laughs> shop doesn't work. Like beans and Jesus coffee shop doesn't work. And you go, God just, he took his hand from it. And I think God's like, I, first of all, never gave you that idea. It's a terrible name. I didn't tell you to do it that way. Why did you make it so hard? You know, so I think you have to be smart. <laughs> I like it. Okay, investment number three. And again, we're looking at the four major career transitions that you say will all invariably face. We've hit number one, number two. The next one you have is character, who you are. Your statement there is if relationships are who you know and skills are what you do. Character is who you are. You know, John, I mean, we've got personality tests to understand our inherent personality styles. We can take an inventory of our skills and better understand and grow them. Like the exercise you talked about, we can learn healthy relational attributes and better apply them. But character, I mean, where's the tool or measurement to understand our character and further grow it. So for those who are listening to that, okay, how do I do that? How do I measure? Where's that barometer for character? 
Yeah, well, I think, again, like, this is why they're all connected, why they, you know, it's it's four legs of the same table. Um, I, I've always joked, I'd love to see a conference where the spouses of the leaders got to share what they're really like, um, you know, because I just think there's a lot, of, I've met a lot of leaders that have really unhappy spouses, um, and they've sacrificed their marriage, their health, their family for whatever is the thing they're trying to trying to grow. And, and, you know, anyone who hustles 24, seven, 365 days a year, there's a, there's a name for that. It's, it's addict. It's just that heroin looks worse than workaholism. Um, but so I think that, you know, jokes aside with a spouse, I think your friends are great barometers of who you really are. And I think sometimes we're so close to our story that we can't tell what it looks like. And it's kind of, Kind of like if you're in a bad dating relationship and then you break up, the further you get away from it, the more you go, why did I let that happen? Like, why did I let him talk to me that way or she treat me that way? And your friends go, we told you the whole time we were trying to tell you. So I think a, a great shortcut to understanding your character is to be in relationship and ask people, okay, you know, what are some parts of my character that you think I could invest in more? You know, and I, and I guarantee a friend who loves you, this isn't something you do with 10 people. Like, I don't want to act like this is an easy conversation, but a friend who loves you will say, you know, you never respond to texts. And I know you think that's a small thing, and I know you think that doesn't matter, but it matters. And it makes me, your friend, feel really invisible when I do a one-way relationship and you don't respond, or I'm the only one that tries to set up times for us to interact. And that makes me feel not important, and I feel like there's a strain of selfishness there that you need to be careful about. So I think a big part of it is your friends. Okay. Investment for hustle. And you've mentioned this numerous, numerous, numerous times in, in this, how you work. I mean, we all like the idea of hustle. We love to see the movies. I own the movie, Jerry Maguire. I love it. The dude hustles, makes it happen. Uh, it, it hits my heartstrings, but in real life, those who actually hustle and actually make things happen are few. And there's def there's always times in my life where there's something I desire that's going to require more hustle and I'm dealing with my own overwhelmedness, laziness, whatever it may be. So what do you often find is at the root of our desire to hustle, our desire to achieve something, to even want to hustle, but often the lack of follow through on actually doing it? Well, a lot of times it's, it's distraction um, or a lot of times we're not observant. Um, I, you know, I, people tell me all the time, I can't hustle because I'm busy. And we are busy. We're a busy culture. But then you start to look at stats like the average 21-year-old has played 10,000 hours of video games, um, which is you know the expertise level of Malcolm Gladwell. Um, the, ab the American economy loses $6.5 billion during the fantasy football season. Um, the average American watches 34 to 35 hours of TV a week. And so whenever somebody tells me they're busy, I always challenge them, well, what, like, do a time audit. Like, do a week-long time audit. Let's see where the hours are really going. Because I guarantee when you do that, I remember for me, I, um, I started to practice speeches in the car on the way to my full-time job in the morning because it was dark. I lived in Atlanta. It was going to be a long drive. And I could just say that, you know, like, I, I taught that steering wheel so many things. And then <laughs> I did phone call meetings on the way home that weren't work-related but were me trying to do the hustle. So a big part of it is going – okay, here's what my week really looks like. Here's some time. And here's where time's going. I mean, it's so weird how we binge watch TV. Like the word binge in the 90s was a bad term. 
And now it's a marketing term. When you go to you know a bookstore or a, a you know Best Buy, it'll, there'll be a category binge worthy TV. And so that's really changed in our generation. And I'm not against TV. I like TV. There's there's shows I like to watch, but I think part of hustle is understanding where your time is going right now, and then finding something you love enough to give it the time instead. Okay, so I'm going to end with this question that we so often talk about passion and you are, are a passionate guy who has a, a, a passion for things that you do and for things that you impart. But I want to take it to another term of what burdens you. So when it's you, it's, it's home at night. You've been as a, at a presentation, you've been with a group, you've had the chance to lead, but you've been around people. It's you and your, your wife, close friends, whatever, what burdens you, what do you yearn for, for, for the folks who you get the opportunity to influence, what has God really put on your heart that you yeah, you really a, want for them? That's a great question. Um, I think what what burdens me, you know, I think a lot of times I write um, to the person that I remember being. Like I remember, um, I'm sitting in, in my car, I'm trying to listen to like a motivational song to gear up and force myself to go into a job that I don't want to go into. And I feel like there's no way, um, there's no way to get, you know, around it. I feel stuck. And then realizing it doesn't have to be that way, that a lot of the rules I thought were the rules aren't the rules. Um, and that there's other things you can do and that I didn't start with anything special. Like it wasn't, you know, my dad's a pastor. Like we didn't grow up with money. It wasn't, you know, this is before pastors got to be rich. Like this is just a normal pastor. And I didn't feel like I had the like anything that other people didn't have. And so what burdens me is is getting people to believe two things. Like like I said, one, that you're capable of more than you think. And two, it's gonna take more work than you think. And a lot of times there's people in my space, motivational people that are good at that first one, they're good at getting you excited and all fired up, but there's no steps, there's no actual discussion of the work, and so it falls apart. And then on the second other side, there's a lot of books that are great at, you know, telling you about the work and steps and plans, but there's no heart. There's no hope to fuel it through. And so that's what burdens me is, is thinking about that. And then for me, like we just, uh, we had a study done by, um, the university of Memphis who analyzed the results of the 30 days of hustle program and people that do it are 25% more successful than they've ever been on goal setting. And that, like, I wanted to cry reading those results because they represent thousands of people that are going to lose weight and write books and start businesses and love their family. And so for me to have statistical evidence, not just, I hope this kind of happens because on the internet you get to say whatever you want with no fact, like what fires me, like the question to me is what burdens you and what frustrates you? What burdens me is kind of the unused ability that people have that I think they were gifted with. What frustrates me is the number of snake oil salesmen that populate the internet who have never accomplished anything and really don't care about helping people, but figured out there's internet marketing. And if they do an online class, they can take somebody's money. And that's the stuff that, not that it's my job to protect people or say, you have to be careful, but I feel very frustrated by that, where there's, you know, a 19 year old life coach. And I think good, like what good grief, or there's somebody who I know is, is really just trying to take advantage of people and doing all the psychological games to create fear and all these things. That's what kind of frustrates me the most. Thank you. 
Uh, for sharing that. And so folks on that note, the 30 days of hustle that's coming up, go to ACUF, A-C-U-F-F dot me. Again, I told you that at the beginning of the show, but ACUF dot me, you can get involved in that and everything else that John is doing. Find his books there. And of course you can find him wherever you look for books. John, just thank you for doing what you need to do to deliver what God's called you to, to deliver your message. Thanks for taking the time to share it with our true performance audience today is a gift yeah. and uh, I'm a grateful recipient. I appreciate it, Kevin. And uh, the direct URL is 3030daysofhustle.com. And we're about to launch the last class of the year. There's a September class. So it's 30 days, 30 videos. And um, yeah, it's really fun to watch people change their lives. I didn't, I didn't understand that when I, when I had lunch with Zig, I was young in this experience. And the further I go into it, when he talks about if you'll help people, the whole world opens up to you. I didn't understand that. And it's been fun in the last few years to build on that. And so as somebody who's been touched by what the Ziegler organization does, um, it's always fun to connect with you guys. Ah, it's a gift. Thank you, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Look forward to talking to you in the next show. <laughs>